Thank you, Nathan. Thank you for describing the lives of some who don't want to move past verse 9 and who love to stay there and wallow in it. And thank you for reminding us that verse 10, it's our infirmity, and we need to make choices and do things to get out of it. And one of those things is to remember the Lord Jesus Christ, which is superior to anything that Asaph had to remember. And we have the cure. We have the remedy. And that's the glory of the Son of God and what he's done for us. Thank you, Newell. Welcome back. Welcome back to everyone that's here that hasn't been here before. We appreciate having you in our midst, and I appreciate the enthusiasm I've heard from some of you to be here today. Open the Word of God with me to 1 Timothy 3.16. Open the precious Word of God to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. It rejoices my heart to have started off this day an hour and a half ago with a number of our children quoting 1 Timothy 3.16 to me. I hope they never forget it. It is a great verse. And we are back to 1 Timothy 3.16 for this service. Not the second service, but this service. I want to be as slow and as simple and sweet, that's hard for me, as I can be. I am sorry for our children and some of you having to endure 60, 70, 80 sermons about Isaiah. Many of you profited from those. I told you in the beginning it was inferior to the New Testament. I told you that. And it is. But we learned many things. And we did see the Lord Jesus Christ stuck in various places. And we saw the gospel and the conversion of the Gentiles and the glorious kingdom reign of our Lord and many wonderful promises of his care for his people. But the New Testament is better. It's called new because the old is old and the old is ready to vanish away. The old covenant. Not, we're not going to get rid of the 39 books of the Old Testament. So I'm going to be simple. And this is simple. And I want to be able to slow down. For one year, I have not been able to slow down at all because I had to keep a commitment that I made, and that was to preach an entire chapter of Isaiah in each sermon. And so now I get to relax and do things a little differently, I hope. Paul made it clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that he was the wise master builder of New Testament churches. And he laid a foundation for New Testament churches, and that foundation should not be altered, nor should wood, hay, and stubble be put upon it, but gold, silver, and precious stones. And that New Testament foundation is Christ Jesus. And there is no other foundation for the churches of Jesus Christ. Paul made that clear. We want Jesus Christ in all things in our church to have the preeminence. The Apostle Paul chose to dumb down his preaching. In 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, he was a well-educated, well-trained, experienced, intelligent, logical man and an orator in his own right, but he chose not to use those skills. And he plainly tells us that in 1 Corinthians 2, in order that he might make Jesus Christ and him crucified the cornerstone and the principal part of his preaching. I determined, see it wasn't a lack of ability, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. The same brother told us in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14, but God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. He did not want to glory or get excited about anything else but Jesus Christ and his cross. This past Wednesday night, when a a number of you came to be with me here in this place, about half of our church, 
we reviewed Paul's great summary of our faith in this verse. 1 Timothy 3.16. We had a great time together. I knew I had the best content possible for you. I presented it as well as I know how. Though it's very flawed, but the content was great. And we did have good fellowship around this text. The six events or facts in verse 16 before you are indeed glorious. It is a summary of our religion. And it is a glorious views of the nature of the character and the life and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. That is Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord and our Savior, our King, the blessed and only potentate, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is who is the center of our church. He's the great bishop of our souls. He's the cornerstone of our church and faith. He is all in all to us. When we look at verse 15, it tells us that that verse, verse 16, is the mission statement and the mandate and the purpose and the goal for our church. Verse 15 says, If I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. We are today in the house of God. Jacob, once upon a time, had a dream in which God appeared to him at the top of a stairway of a ladder. And there were angels ascending and descending on that ladder down to him. And when he woke, he had nothing with him but a little vessel of oil. And he poured that oil on the stones that had made his bed that night. And he called the place Bethel, the house of God, the house of Elohim, Bethel. And we have so much more than the poor man Jacob had. Look at what we have. We know the Lord Jesus Christ and so many details about him and all the brethren that we have. He was utterly alone in the world at that moment. We are so blessed. This verse 15 tells us that Paul wrote pastoral epistles to tell young pastors like Timothy how to conduct themselves in the church. But he calls it the house of God first because it's the place where God is. Because God appeared to Jacob there, and so that's why Jacob called it the house of God or Bethel. And this is where God appears to us, and this is how he is worshipped by us coming together in this place. It isn't this building whatsoever. It's us coming together. And that is why the word church is then used because the word church means congregation or a group of called out people. So verse 15 tells us, that the pastoral epistles are for Timothy to know how to conduct himself as a minister, but then there is a transition that that house of God in which Timothy operates as God's minister is also the church of the living God, the congregation of people God has called out to be his children, and it is their purpose and their goal and their mission statement to be the pillar and the ground, the foundation, the footings, and the supports of the truth of the gospel. And the truth of the gospel is defined in the 16th verse. That is why this verse is so important to us. Because it is a mission statement for us. It is a mandate for our lives. It is our goal. It is our purpose. It should be our excitement and the love of our souls is what is in verse 16. And so it goes on to say in verse 16, without controversy... The six things listed there are great. When I read words great and mystery and godliness in the same sentence, I get excited because the great God of heaven is telling me something is great and that it's a mystery that others don't know about 
So he is sharing with me the secret of his covenant. Psalm 25 describes it in detail. And it is about him. And it is about his worship. And it is about his works, which is why it's called godliness in this context. If you go to the next verse, ignoring the chapter break for just a moment, if you go to the next verse, it tells us, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith. What is the faith? It's in verse 16. Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. What a setting for verse 16. Because there is a Roman Catholic church that claims 1.2 billion adherents today in the earth's population, and they are in the first three verses of chapter 4, but we are in the last verse of chapter 3. And it's by the grace of God, and let's never move from it. And let's love it. It was a great pleasure to preach that simple sermon to you, and I do not apologize for repeating myself as I used Peter to defend me because of those four verses in 2 Peter chapter 1 where he said, as long as I'm alive, I'm going to stir up your mind, your pure minds by way of remembrance, even for those things that you are established in and already know. Because as Psalm 77 was presented to us, sometimes we lose sight of those things and we need to be reminded. Four Psalms earlier, Asaph was really messed up. He had a problem with being messed up. And so it says his cure was to go where? Into the sanctuary, into the house of God. Thus everything that I'm trying to say to you. There can be no doubt about the greatness of this summary verse. It is beyond controversy or debate or questioning that it is indeed a great statement of the mystery of our faith. And mystery to us is not some word for sorcery or witchcraft or the hidden arts. That word mystery for us is something the world can't know because it's by divine revelation to divinely prepared people. And that's why we know it. He has sent it to us and he's prepared us to receive it. Now I threw out a teaser while I was preaching to you on Wednesday evening. And the teaser was, where is the crucifixion? Paul said, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So where's the crucifixion in 1 Timothy? Well, some ladies got together after that service, about an hour after it finished, and spent some time together in the back of this meeting room debating where the crucifixion was, hid in 1 Timothy 3.16. And that is what we are going to do for the next few minutes. I've already sent the outline to you. You just didn't know where it was, maybe. I sent it to you when I got home that evening, and I couldn't sleep until the a.m. I sat there at my computer and listened to music, and read scripture, and wrote emails, and wrote you an email about 1 Timothy 3.16 because I was out of my mind. And it's the way I want to be out of my mind as often as the Lord will allow me to be out of my mind. And that was thinking upon this text and all of its glory. After having ridden home and for 15 minutes being asked by my wife on behalf of those ladies, where was the crucifixion? Let's enjoy this. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. My sermon today, this morning, has two chief goals. I want you to see the richness. I want you to see the riches in this list of God. I want you to see how rich this list is. The Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians that Jesus Christ is unsearchable riches. And I want you to see those in these six phrases that we have. That's my first goal. My second goal is to teach you and show you by example how to read deeper, how to slow down and look at some verses 
and think about the implications of the verses, not just the surface level of the verses. Now, I did that for you in Isaiah. And there were times in Isaiah where because you had not put in the 20 or the 40 or the 60 hours for that chapter, you just had to grin and bear it. Well, he's my pastor. I guess that's what it means. I tried to, make, I tried to prove it while we went through the chapter, but you don't have to do that in 1 Timothy 3.16. James, I expect you to understand this. Noah, you can understand this. Where's the crucifixion? Where's Jesus' cross? Where's Jesus' death? Where's his burial? Where's his resurrection? All it says is, God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed unto the world, received up into glory. Where's the cross? Can we take the mission statement for our church and in the words of Isaiah 26, draw some water out of this well of salvation? With a little thinking with me, you can find the assumed death and resurrection in this list easily and richly. Number one, God was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. Keep in mind that I could prove God was manifest in the flesh 50 different ways from 50 different Bible verses for you. But that is not my purpose. My purpose is to find the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in this passage. And so we have to find where it is in the words, God was manifest in the flesh. If you doubt my 50 reasons and 50 verses, it is an outline from 2013 on our website entitled, The Great Mystery of Godliness. If it says slides, don't go there. That's a condensation for us simple people. Go to the outline, the detailed, single-spaced outline called, Great is the Mystery of Godliness. And then you'll have 50 examples or 30 or 40 or 60 for each of these six points. Right now, what we want to do is look at those words and find the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. God was manifest in the flesh. So I'm limiting myself severely. Just keep that in mind. I was asked to preach a series on this verse and take as long as I wanted. But I'm not going to. I've got one sermon. And that means I only get about four minutes of a phrase. So we've got to go rather quickly. And here we go rather quickly after that introduction. Jesus needed a flesh and blood body in order to die for our sins as our grand substitute. God was manifest in the flesh. Why did God have to come down and get one of our flesh, bone, and blood bodies so that he could die a flesh, bone, and blood death for us? That is why the crucifixion is slam-packed into the first clause. God was manifest in the flesh. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. John 1:14. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. A flesh body, a boy, was born through the birth canal of Mary the Virgin. And God was made flesh so that he could die a flesh death for us. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 with me. Hebrews chapter 2, just a few pages away. Verse 9, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. See, the angels are just spirits. They're not limited with a flesh and blood body like we are, but Jesus was made lower than the angels because he was made with a flesh and blood body for the suffering of death. So when you look at God was manifest in the flesh, why did God have to take on human flesh in order for him to die for us? Because the wages of sin is death. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. 
Jesus took on human nature. Look at verse 14. For as much then as the children, that's you and me, the children of God, the brethren of Jesus Christ, are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. What does the same mean? Flesh and blood. He took on the nature of a human existence with a flesh and blood body. And it tells us why, that he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. It is the devil that deceived our mother, our first mother, who then seduced our first father in order for them to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and bring death upon our race. But Jesus delivered us from death by being made flesh so that he could die a flesh death for us. Chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 6 tell us that the sacrifices of the Old Testament could never put away sin. Verse 7, Jesus said, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. What did he come to do? To take his body that God had prepared him and offer it for a sacrifice on the cross. It is in verse 5. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. God gave a body to Jesus Christ who said, I come to do thy will. And since animal sacrifices would not put away sin, I'll put away sin by the sacrifice of myself once for all. Verse 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And amen. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit. Now, let me say for the second time, I could elaborate on what the words justified in the spirit mean, but we're only looking at one small segment of what they mean, and that is the crucifixion of Jesus, justified in the spirit. Jesus wasn't a sinner, so he did not need to be justified the way that we need to be justified. When we are justified, Jesus Christ takes our sins and bears the penalty for them so that we are free from their condemnation, and he gives us his perfect righteousness so that we stand before God in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and our sins are completely paid for. But that is not how justified is used here, and it's not how it's used in other places. Like when the publicans and the harlots were baptized, it says they justified God. Well, God doesn't need justification in that sinful way of acquittal. He needs to be declared and proved that He is God, and we declare and prove that He is God by being baptized in the baptism of repentance, by repenting that we are wrong and you're right. And that's what baptism says. And how did the Holy Spirit do that? The Holy Spirit, by many different operations, proved and declared that Jesus was the Son of God, including His crucifixion. When I look at Matthew chapter 27 and verse 54, I find the centurion in charge of the crucifixion, beholding everything that was done, and I want to remind you that the Holy Spirit is the operative person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is the one that comes to earth and works on behalf for God, as God, because He is God. My examples are like these. Genesis 1-2, And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. It wasn't God the Father on the face of the waters. It wasn't the Word of God on the face of the waters. And don't push me too hard on this, because I will back into a corner and say, they're all three involved, that's why they're called the Trinity. Because the Word of God, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So if you push me hard enough, I'll give you scripture right back, justifying you pushing me into a corner. But I want you to know that it is when the Spirit came upon men like Jephthah and like Samson and like David that they did great things. It doesn't say the Word came upon them. It doesn't say the Father came upon them. The Spirit came upon them. And I, can't, I, have, I have no time to say what I just said. But it says, justified in the Spirit. The centurion beheld three hours of darkness. The, 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 uh, the centurion beheld an earthquake that rent stones and opened cemeteries. He witnessed one thief 
being converted on the cross and begging Jesus when he came into his kingdom to receive him. And he smote his breast and said, truly, this man was the son of God on the cross, on the cross. Truly, this man was the son of God. So when you look at those words back there in 316, justified in the spirit, the spirit was doing things, his whole ministry. The spirit came down in the form of a dove on his head. The spirit gave him power to do miracles. And the Bible tells us with the power of the Holy Ghost, he went about Galilee and the regions thereof performing miracles. John, the God told John the Baptist, the man upon whom you see the spirit of God descending and staying, he is the son of God. Now, but that's not what we have for today. Today is, is the crucifixion in 1 Timothy 3.16. Is it in the words, justified in the Spirit? Absolutely. The things the Spirit was doing at the cross, around the cross of Calvary, with the darkness and the sun not shining, and the earthquake, and the, temp, the veil of the temple being rent from top to bottom, the centurion said, truly, this man was the Son of God. In Luke 23 is where we're told about the one thief who had been cursing and railing on Jesus with the other thief, stopping, rebuking the other cursing and railing thief, and asking Jesus to remember him and calling him Lord when he came into his kingdom. That is the Holy Spirit doing the great work of quickening souls and changing them right there before the whole crowd around the cross to see and behold the power of the Holy Ghost. If we go to Romans chapter 1, where I would like you to turn to see this in print, Romans chapter 1, we can find out about the resurrection from the dead and by what power Jesus was raised from the dead. He was justified in the Spirit, according to 1 Timothy 3.16. Elijah, do you know 1 Timothy 3.16? Check with me after. I'm glad you do. I hope that all of you do. I hope that I do. I do. This is our 316 verse. Right. Now when I say that, I'm going to say immediately, John 316 is ours as well, because we understand it. Amen. And we use it properly. Romans chapter 1, verse 3. Let me, let me start at the beginning. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Did Isaiah promise the preaching of the gospel in any of the chapters that we covered? Indeed he did. Right there. We ran upon it many times where I would tell you that righteousness there is not legal righteousness. It is preached righteousness. And the law would go forth and he would not be discouraged nor fail. That's in parentheses in verse 2. Concerning his son, the gospel is the glad tidings and good news about the son of God. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh of the seed of David through Mary and a legal father, Joseph, both of whom were from David and declared, 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 that is justified, that is proven and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Amen. justified in the spirit. What's the spirit of holiness? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. So that in Ephesians chapter 1, it tells us that for us to be born again takes the same power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead. And he has regenerated us and he has resurrected our dead souls as our brother Zach prayed a little while ago. So when you look at the words justified in the spirit, can they, do they, without forcing them, apply to the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Yes. Amen. And I have not brought forth all the evidence. Remember, I said I wanted to be short, simple, and sweet. But I'm losing sweetness. Scene of angels. Scene of angels. Did the angels announce his birth? Yes. Did, the, did the angels help him in the wilderness being tempted by the devil? Did the angels help him in Gethsemane? Yes. And about there is where we can start with those angels. The angels witnessed Jesus during his life and were much more involved than just watching. 
The great host of elect and holy angels was involved in his ministry for him and others, as he told Nathaniel in John chapter 1, which I mentioned Wednesday evening, you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. They were integrally involved in his ministry and his life. What about his crucifixion? In the Garden of Gethsemane, they were there. Scene of angels. They saw him groaning and grieving and praying and sweating as it were in an agony, as it were with great drops of blood. They saw him and were sent from heaven and strengthened him. They were involved. He was seen of angels in Gethsemane while men slept. They did not sleep. Those angels do not sleep. They were there to help the Son of God. Jesus knew his whole life, and at his arrest, the angels were ready. Jesus knew they were there, and when Peter pulled a sword, Jesus told Peter to put his sword up. Don't you know that I could call on my Father right now for 12 legions, and I'd have 72,000 of these angels? And from Isaiah, we've learned that one angel can pass through a camp of experienced Assyrian soldiers and kill 185,000, what could six legions, 12 legions, excuse me, 6,000 per legion, have done to the mob in Gethsemane? Because they saw his agony about the cup that he was going to drink, and the cup was the crucifixion. Who blinded the guards that kept his tomb after he died on the cross, rolled the stone away, and sat there and told the women, He is risen, just like He told you, and if you'll go into Galilee, He'll meet you there. Scene of angels. You look at those words, scene of angels, and then you look through the gospel accounts. Were the angels at the crucifixion? Is the crucifixion implied, taught, assumed in the words, scene of angels? Indeed. Indeed. So far, so good. We're halfway through it. God was manifest in the flesh. He needed a flesh and blood body. Mariah, do you hear me? He needed a flesh and blood body to die. Justified in the Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that justified him his entire life. But the Holy Spirit was there when he was on the cross and did some powerful things. And then scene of angels. Seen in the Garden of Gethsemane. Seen standing there ready to rescue him if he had called on them with that angry mob. Don't you fear any angry mob. God has His angels to protect us. And then they blinded those guards, rolled away the stone, and were sitting there waiting for the women to arrive. Jesus was involved in the crucifixion, death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Of course, the apostle wouldn't forget the crucifixion of Jesus in this verse. Of course, the Holy Spirit wouldn't forget the crucifixion of Jesus in this verse. So we come to preached unto the Gentiles. Boy, we learned in our study of Isaiah that this glorious event is prophesied throughout Isaiah. That God was going to send preachers out to the Gentiles. and The Gentiles were going to believe and the Gentiles were going to be a huge number and the Jewish church was going to explode in size by the blessings of Gentiles being preached to. There would be ministers of God with a capital M. Do you remember some of those verses? Describing the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus charged his gospel to the twelve and preaching to the, to the Gentiles, but especially to Paul. Matthew 28. Go and teach all nations. Matthew 28. Mark 16. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Acts 1.8. Ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So preaching to the Gentiles was prophesied throughout the gospel and charged by Jesus Christ to his apostles, especially the apostle Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles and was told that on the Damascus road. I have appeared to thee for this reason, that you should be a light and salvation to the Gentiles. And so it is preached unto the Gentiles. Was the crucifixion preached to the Gentiles? It's the biggest part of the gospel. Of course it was preached to the Gentiles. 
So when you look at the words preached unto the Gentiles, you can blow over them and want to get on to the next phrase, or you can stop and say, what was preached? What did Philip preach to the eunuch? When Philip was in the chariot with the eunuch, what did he preach to him? What book of Isaiah, it tells us it was the book of Isaiah, was the eunuch reading that Philip saw the passage, explained it to the eunuch, and preached Jesus unto him? What, pass, what chapter was it of Isaiah? Isaiah 53. What is Isaiah 53 about? The crucifixion of our Lord. So when it says preached unto the Gentiles, even the deacon turned evangelist named Philip understood that you preach the crucifixion. So when we look at this mission statement and this mandate for our church, and it says preached unto the Gentiles, what do we know about world history over the last 2,000 years? What was preached? The crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do I need, in Acts chapter 10, it's not Philip this time, it's Peter. Peter has Cornelius and his household and soldiers, quite a crowd there. And Peter takes up and says, I believe you've all heard about Jesus of Nazareth who went about doing good and healing people of all their diseases. But they fulfilled the, the scriptures of the prophets and nailed him to a cross and he died, was buried, but God raised him from the dead. Right. That's preaching. That was Peter. Paul is in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, starting at verse 28, all the way to verse 48. Paul is preaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's, and he's preaching a nice sermon up to, up, at, up to the 30s, where the Jews that were in attendance at that synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia would have been shouting, Amen. But then he begins talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, about all the good things he did, and he was the one sent from God, the Son of God, the, prophet, the prophesied Messiah. But the Jews... Again, violating the, their own scriptures, crucified him, put him on a cross, and buried him, but God raised him from the dead. That's what was preached to the Gentiles. Where do you want to look? Acts 8, 10, or 13? You say, are there any other examples in the Bible of preaching Christ? Let's look at this one. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Brethren, when you read the Bible, and the Bible tells you that a verse is special, and the Bible tells you that a verse is great. And the Bible tells you that a verse has mysteries in it and is a mystery. And that it's about godliness. Embrace that verse. Embrace that verse and love that verse. And slow down when you read it. And don't just memorize it for the sound of the words. Memorize it for the sense of those words. The crucifixion is in every one of those six phrases. God was manifest in the flesh. He needed a flesh body to die. Justified in the spirit. The Spirit justified him on the cross by darkness, a rent veil in the temple, and an earthquake, and rocks being rent, a sinner being converted, and rolled the stone away, and told the women he's risen just like he told you. Why are you looking for him here? Scene of angels. They were there doing that with the Holy, by the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit, because Jesus himself was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Ghost. Right. Romans chapter 1 told us that. In 1 Corinthians 15, Moreover, brethren, verse 1, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. So this is, the Corinthian church was in Achaia, Greece. The southern half of Greece. Macedonia was the northern half. that had Philippi and Thessalonica in it. This is the southern part. They were Gentiles. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. And that is why I am preaching what I am today, to keep these things in your memory, to keep you always remembering these things. The Corinthians forgot these things so much that they denied the resurrection of the body, and they had lost the hope of the gospel. And if they don't have the hope of the gospel, of a future for resurrected bodies, then our religion is of all religions most miserable because it doesn't offer all that much pleasure in this life for the flesh. It offers pleasure in this life for the spirit. 
But that's all in 1 Corinthians 15 because they had forgotten. But he was begging them to remember what he had preached to them. Verse 3, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Preached unto the Gentiles. What? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the Scriptures. So when you look at the fourth phrase, preached unto the Gentiles, the crucifixion is there in full, in detail, according to the Scriptures. Believed on in the world. Well, it says here that these Corinthians received that preaching. It says in Acts chapter 13, did the eunuch receive it and believe it? He said... What doth hinder me to be baptized, since we have water right here in this oasis? If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Amen. Believed on in the world. So there was an Ethiopian believing. And then there was a centurion believing. Because God confirmed his belief by pouring out the gift of Pentecost on Gentiles that shocked the Jews in attendance and that Peter had to retell in chapter 11, and then again in chapter 15, believed on in the world. Yes, it was believed on in the world. For 4,000 years, God had left idolatrous and pagan Gentiles in darkness. God had winked at their ignorance, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And some in the world did repent. Peter and Paul, in that order, declared to the Council of Jerusalem about how many Gentiles had believed on Christ. When you go read the account in Acts 15 of the Council at Jerusalem, Peter said, God made choice among all of us that the Gentiles by my mouth would hear the gospel. I'm the first one with the household of Cornelius. Then they turned it over to Paul and Barnabas, who preached about all the Gentiles that had been converted by their preaching. In Acts chapter 13... Eight, the eunuch believed. Ten, Cornelius believed. Thirteen, did the Gentiles believe? And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life, believed. What did they believe? For I declared unto you that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. We believed on in the world. From Isaiah, you know by what we've learned in the last year that the Gentiles believing a religious message from low-class Jews, Paul wasn't one, but the rest of the apostles were, was a tremendous event in the history of the world. Tremendous event. But was the crucifixion part of it? Indeed. Indeed. That's what they believed. That's what they heard. They had never heard anything like it. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed, and of course we understand that too, that when it says believed on in the world, it doesn't say the world believed on him. It says believed on in the world that some believed him. And those that believed him were ordained to eternal life. So were to received up into glory. Received up into glory. Finally, Pastor, we've got you this time, Pastor. You haven't slowed down to look at that little, those, that little phrase. Received up into glory received up into glory. That means he didn't go to hell, doesn't it? That means though he was the sin bearer for his people, he didn't go to hell. He was received up into glory. The rich man died and lifted up his eyes in hell. But Jesus went to heaven. The Bible tells us that Jesus descended to come into this world, and then he ascended. And when he ascended, the Bible tells us he ascended far above everything. When he descended... He descended into the lowest parts of this earth for really how many people have been born and laid in a feeding trough in a stable. He descended into the lowest parts of the earth, but then ascended, which is being received up into glory. Does the Bible say that this mind ought to be in us, which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in likeness of men, and suffered the cruel death of the cross, a death of torture. What does it say after that, after a word, 
Wherefore? Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Amen. Received up into glory. And when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That's being received up into glory. But what did he do to get received up into glory? When he had by himself purged our sins. You read it last night in Hebrews 1.3. Turn to Revelation and we'll close. Revelation. Chapter 5. Do we have a picture? Do we have a view? Do we have a written vision of Jesus being received up into glory? Indeed we do. Let me say this again. In Acts chapter 1, after that commission to preach the gospel in four expanding regions, the next verse, Acts 1-9, Jesus was carried up into a cloud and carried into heaven. And angels stood there and said, this same Jesus is going to come in like manner. But when he left this world, he was carried up. Elijah was carried up. Jesus was carried up and arrived in heaven. So if you're reading Acts 1, 9 through 11, when you get to verse 11, turn to Revelation 5. Because in Acts 1, 9 through 11, you see him going into a cloud and disappearing and the apostles looking up. In Revelation chapter 5, you have a vision of him arriving, received up into glory. Very quickly, look at this. Revelation chapter 5, you know the chapter, I want select verses. And I beheld in verse 6, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. What does it say about that lamb? As it had been slain. Is the crucifixion in? Received up into glory? Yes! Don't tell me you've got me. I've got you, brethren. This, this passage is wonderful. Received up into glory. A lamb as it had been slain. Look at verse 9. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. So we have received up into glory and believed on in the world, don't we? And preached unto the Gentiles in that ninth verse. What about verse 12? Saying with a loud voice, now it's time for the angels to sing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So when we look at God's divinely inspired summary of the faith and doctrine of the churches of Jesus Christ, for which they should be willing to spend and do anything to support it, defend it, promote it, and defend it. When we look at those six things, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is richly in every single one of them because it is all about the Son of God coming and dying for us, being buried, and rising again the third day. With a little thinking, you can find them. If you'll meditate, you can find them. I just showed you how to slow down and think, received up into glory. Oh yeah, that's in Revelation 5. Then you go over there and read Revelation 5, and it's all about his death. Manifest in the flesh. Just look up the word flesh. Add blood. Add bone. And find out about the Lord Jesus Christ, why he had to be made like us in our nature. Why was he given a body? I come to do thy will, O God, with this body that you've given me. And that's the crucifixion in 1 Timothy 3.16. If you'll meditate on it, you can see Christ's glory in the verse. Nathan gave us Psalm 77. And he told us that we have an infirmity. And some of you let your infirmity win. You're just, you're just mentally and spiritually and personality-wise lazy. 
You don't have to let it win. It's not stronger than you. You can be stronger than it. You can put your body under. You can put that, those feelings under. And Asaph told us to do it in that 10th verse of Psalm 77. This is my infirmity, so I will remember. And instead of remembering the pitiful stuff that Asaph had to remember, remember this verse. And remember some of the things that can be drawn out of this verse. And remember the Lord Jesus Christ. How for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And then if you are bearing a cross, nor any of you will be crucified this next week. But for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. And we are all going to be set down at the right hand of God with him. So let's just remember those things. Brethren, a final word of warning. If a person in our church, if a person anywhere, does not think about these things, Speak about these things. Live passionately for Christ, but gets distracted and minds earthly things. The Bible says they are belly worshipers and the enemies of the cross of Christ. Philippians 3, 18 and 19. So when you look at that verse and you wonder, why did the pastor preach it to us again? I want you to make a choice that Asaph made in 7710 with inferior content, I want you to make the choice with superior content and to think upon Christ. And instead of thinking about yourself, which is only a downward death spiral, think about Christ. And don't mind earthly things. Mind heavenly things. The world wants us to be entirely consumed right now with two Ps, the pandemic and the protests. Neither of them measure in the slightest way on the history of the world. They're nothing. What I just gave you Wednesday night and today is everything. Think on these things. Amen. Please stand with me.